I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Well, uh, I tell you, I am currently in California at, uh, at a conference celebrating the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae. Uh, the conference is called Faithful to God's Design, put on by the California Association of Natural Family Planning. We talked with their director a couple of weeks ago, Sheila St. John, right here on the show. And uh, here we are in, uh, in Ontario, California, just outside of L.A. And I have to tell you, this is not a place I want to be outside the walls all that often because it is hot here. Uh, we've only been up in the Pacific Northwest for a couple of weeks, and I have already acclimated and feel very much uh, at home there. And so when I got off the plane and, uh, and really early in the morning, and it was already toasty, toasty hot, I was uh, an unhappy camper. That didn't last long, though, because uh, I got the opportunity to speak to the priests along with my beloved wife. Uh, and we shared our story of how Humana Vitae affected our lives. And it affected it quite profoundly. We talked about it here recently. It brought us into full communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, and so we had the opportunity to share that story, to talk a little bit about the work that we do uh, through my wife's apostolate, NFP Aware. You can find out about that over at nfpaware.com. Uh, and we got to share a little bit about what we have learned in that process with, with priests, including some who are just very new priests. It was a, a great privilege. Uh, now, there are all kinds of fantastic speakers. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in the room. We're giving this talk, and, and listening to this talk is Archbishop Coeur d'Alene uh, of, of San Francisco Diocese. And um, over there was Dr. Janet Smith, whose work has just been fantastically important in our lives. And all around the room, wherever we looked, there there were just some fantastic people. And it was such a privilege to be able to talk with them uh, in the morning. And then in the afternoon, as we were, we were finished with that and we finished our lunch, we went outside and promptly melted because it is so, uh, so much hotter than, than it should be. But no, this is a fantastic conference. Um, we had the opportunity to sit down on Thursday with Dr. Janet Smith uh, and we're going to be sharing that conversation with you here today. There are some other interviews that we have had this week, and we'll share those with you in the coming weeks. But I, I wanted to uh, encourage you to go over to the website, the conference website. Even though the conference is over, I believe that there are still some resources there available. It's www.celebratehv50.com. Uh, the, the sessions are being recorded, so if you've missed it, by all means, please go to this website and see about getting, uh, getting access to them. So, here we are, 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae happened this, uh, on the 25th, just a couple of days ago. And here we are watching in the church something fascinating happen as what, what has been resisted for so long, even as there are rumblings in the news media, uh, that, that there's a push to change it. We have Pope Francis, who has come out very clearly, saying, first of all, uh, in canonizing this October, canonizing Pope Paul VI, sends a very clear message about his role 
in the church, and and that the things that he promoted from uh, from Humana Vitae to Evangelii Nuntiandi to all of his other work, these things are now the writings of a saint. Much more than just the writings of a pope, they're the writings of a saint. Uh, also, he recently talked of Pope Paul VI, talking about how courageous he was as a shepherd, and that he, being a good shepherd, shepherded his people wisely. And so here we have a very clear statement from Pope Francis that, you know, the, I know you're looking to me to maybe think that, that we'll move things along, but this is not something that's going to change. This is a, a teaching of the church, and it's a teaching of the church for your benefit, for your good, uh, not not just this, oh, well, you need to suffer and offer it up. No, there is something about having a complete view of our sexuality, of having uh, an integral view of our sexuality, and realizing uh, that we are body and soul together, and that what we do in our bodies affects our souls profoundly, and that if we can grab a hold of that, and realize that God made us for a purpose and we can order our lives according to that purpose, then what's going to be the result is greater fulfillment. Uh, when we, Kristen and I used to do marriage preparation in, in our diocese at the time, and one of the things that, um, that we brought up often was that um, whenever your expectations for life differ from reality, uh, then frustration is the inevitable result because uh, we, we have an idea, we have a goal in mind, and we reach for it, and we are prevented from that thing. We are frustrated in that attempt. And so frustration is always the result when our expectations don't meet reality. Well, here's the thing. Reality is not really movable. Reality has a way of winning when it comes to a battle between expectations and reality. And so the goal for us to reduce frustration is for us to, uh, to moderate our expectations in such a way that they closely align with what is actual. And so for us to have a, a, a stronger sense of, of marriage, a stronger sense of even of our own person, we need for our expectations of marriage and of person and of all that that entails to align closely with reality. And the way that we do that most fully is by comporting to the way that God designed the world. And so one of the ways that the church is calling us to do that is to do that within our sexuality, to recognize that we were created for a very specific purpose. And whenever we try to uh, contravene that, whenever we try to usurp God's role or kind of take the shortcut around the edge, we only shortchange ourselves. We're going to have more of this conversation and dig into that idea a little bit more deeply in our conversation with Dr. Janet Smith just after this break. And as we get into our reading from Scripture and Church History there at the end of today's show, join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter, the handles at outside the walls, where we'll have pictures and links and all kinds of other fun stuff from this conference. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today we're joining you from the, the Faithful to God's Design Conference, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae. We talked about that on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, you can find out more information about it by going to celebratehv50.com. Uh, check out the, the various resources that are still available to you there. Today, we are joined by Dr. Janet Smith. She's the Father McGivney Chair of Life and Ethics at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, Michigan, and has two new books uh, out hot off the presses. One's called Why Humana Vitae is Still Right from Ignatius Press. The other is Self-Gift, Essays on Humana Vitae and the Thought of John Paul II, from Emmaus Academic, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite publishers. Of course, you may know her from her extremely influential talk on CD available just about everywhere, Contraception, Why Not? Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, you have, first of all, it's the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae, so you have been on a whirlwind tour, uh, dotting all over the country. That would be right. There's <laughs> There's something like 40 conferences that are either focused on Humanae Vitae or have a chunk of it in respect to Humanae Vitae just in the United States this year. Mm -hmm. I think I'm speaking at 28 of them. Wow. So it's so, great. So for those of you listening, please r remember to pray for those people who, who have influenced you uh, and, and pray for Dr. Smith and all of those who are going around and proclaiming the truth. Now, you have spent a great deal of your career, one, shaping our priests, being involved uh, in seminary education. So first of all, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll, we'll get back to that question a little bit later. But second of all, you, you are a little bold like a lion. I mean, there, there aren't many controversial topics that I haven't seen you yeah. write about or talk about. Uh, is this just part of your natural disposition uh, well, what brings absolutely, you? Absolutely, absolutely. I remember when I was an undergraduate, I don't know how one of my professors knew about it, that about me, but I went and I asked him, I was trying to figure out a, a paper for a, a title or a topic for a paper, and he said, what makes you mad? <laughs> he says, you write really, you'll write really well on whatever makes you mad. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. There are certain things that just make me mad, and they tend to be the very controversial things. That, and, and so it just feels like I... I, I enjoy those. I like controversy. I like truth. I love, love, love truth. And I think that the truth always needs to be defended and at the end will prevail. I like to be on the winning side. You, truth is the winning side. You gave uh, a talk to the priests at, at the clergy days of this conference. And what, that's one of the things you told them in a more pastoral way, I think, is in to get fired up about these things and to in the care of souls... Uh, to preach out of a place of of true concern and maybe a little bit of holy anger. Yes, I, I, I didn't say that about holy anger, but I think that's that, that would have been good if, had I said that. But I said, you know, that they really, this is your flock. These are your, your, your spiritual children. And uh, th they're sitting out there thinking, uh, this man laid down his whole life mm -hmm. for me. He loves me. And so if there's anything that's an obstacle to my salvation, he would want to remove it. And so if he's not talking to me about porn or contraception or cohabitation or greed or laziness those can't be obstacles because mm -hmm. i know that that's what he would he would try to guide me in the right way as a father would and i said so you really need to look out there and say what does this group need to hear if i'm going to be a good father and and i think that's very important uh, i've i've been in places where you, the the average faithful in that specific parish they wanted to hear 
talks on contraception, not necessarily because they themselves needed it, but because maybe they felt like they already had that figured out and they wanted to hear that kind of uh, sermon for other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there is a sense of uh, the, the father looking at us as his parish and saying, what are the things that, that this flock, that my right. church really needs to hear and struggles with, and then preaching to our brokenness rather than preaching to our successes? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we all do need to be challenged. I think that, uh, I mean, I, I, I was not happy with some of the things that Pope Francis said at the beginning of his pontificate about people being obsessed with the life issues. Mm-hmm. I still don't like that. But I have to admit, um, I was not myself as focused on, on making a personal, on a per- very personal contribution to taking care of the poor. I was very happy to write my checks to various organizations. And I, I honestly believe that not everybody has to do everything. Right. So it's, it's, But on the other hand, uh, I had been, been comfortable and become very comfortable in my little niche in this world. And I really felt that he called me out. And I have to admit, I'm very uncomfortable with what God has called me to do at the moment. But it's because of Pope Francis, and it's wonderful for me, and it's very challenging. I'm helping a, a single woman in, an, in in the inner city with her, her children. And every day is a crisis. And uh, I'm not used to every day being a crisis. So um, it's a big stretch. Yeah. So let's talk about how you got involved uh, in in the question of contraception, in the life issues, uh, on into the whole range of human sexuality uh, is within the purview of your work. What what was the thing that first got you uh, connected to the, these topics and, and has driven you uh, in in your work since yeah, then? It, it's not irrelevant that my, my mother had a baby when I was 13, 11, another when I was 13, and I really loved babies. And then I went off to college in Iowa, and they were trying to liberalize the laws uh, on abortion in Iowa. And I made a trip uh, to the library. I'd never heard of abortion. I'd ne- I was 19, never heard of abortion, which wasn't unusual in 1969, I think it was. So I'm on my way. I stop at the library, and I read up about abortion, and I'm shocked. I was shocked that women would do this. And I was willing to be open-minded about it, but uh, I was shocked. And I read that the Catholic Church was against it, and I would left the church for a while, and so, but that was intriguing to me. And then it, I saw that they, they claimed that the most important question was when human life begins. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that's true. It's got to be true. It's, it, it, before that, maybe it's okay to take, you know, destroy whatever tissue is there. But when life begins, then it needs to be full, accorded full rights. So I went off to this meeting, and I, the, with the full innocence that you can possibly have, I raised my hand and I asked, uh, when does the human life, when do you think human life begins? That will make a difference on how we write letters. So I'm fully prepared to write a letter. And they just shouted, Sh- shut up, sit down, mm-hmm. we don't need your kind here. And I'm wow. sitting there saying, I don't, they, we don't need you right to lifers. Of course, I'd never heard of right to life because I'd never heard of abortion. And so I was shocked. And I, you know, really, this is 1969. And as I tell my students, everybody was trying to look like John Lennon. Mm-hmm. And I had succeeded as well as anyone else. So I'm looking around. I'm saying, what do you mean you're kind? I thought I had succeeded. And then I left, and a number of student, students would come up to me and ask me why I was opposed to abortion. And I, I wasn't, but I said there's a lot of questions that need to be answered before I know. Before long, I was very opposed to abortion. And then you fast forward many years, and um, I got involved in pro-life speaking in Toronto when I was a graduate student there. And I was often asked the question, did I think 
what did I think about contraception? I said, well, two different issues. One prevents a life from coming to be, and the other takes a life that's already come. But then there was a group of uh, really wonderful, wonderful young people, friends I had, who were all either converts or reverts or cradle Catholics, and we were all surprisingly very enthusiastic about being Catholics. And all of our fellow students just couldn't understand that. They thought that we were, you know, intelligent and fun. And But how could we possibly be against women priests and against contraception and against homosexuality? That wasn't much of a question at the time. But anyway, so we we read the documents of Vatican II, and we read Humanae Vitae. Mm-hmm. And I became convinced of that. Fast forward a little bit later, and I got a job at Notre Dame. And I started doing sidewalk counseling outside of an abortion clinic, and I would see these young women going in and trying to think about, you think very profound thoughts <laughs> outside yeah. of an abortion clinic. You have, you, you touch, you touch the, the bottom lines of things. And people, are, women are going in who are pregnant, that means they have a baby, and they come out not pregnant, that means that baby has died, in the meantime been killed. And you're mm-hmm. trying to think like, oh my gosh, uh, how did they get here? And I'm thinking, well, because they're having, it's not that their contraceptives have failed, it's the relationship has failed. They're having sex with no uh, expectation of a pregnancy. So I, I started this image in my mind that right here outside the abortion clinic was sort of like babies had been thrown in a river and they were just about to drown. And I had the opportunity to try to save them at this last minute. But then I thought, suppose I could get upstream hmm. and stop them from being thrown in. And I thought contraception's the problem here. I'd also started, this was actually at the time when John Paul II was delivering his Theology of the Body talks. And they right. were, there's no internet at the time. Right. And uh, someone in Rome was faxing them to a friend of mine at Notre Dame. And he would give them to me. And I started reading them and incorporating the arguments into my teaching. Very impressed with them. And so I just became very enthusiastic about uh, the church's teaching on contraception mm-hmm. and humanae vitae. And it was time to come. I had to write a lot of articles and a book for tenure at Notre Dame. And this friend of mine kept saying, you should write a book on humanae vitae. And I said, you got to be crazy. I said, <laughs> it will not get me a tenure at Notre Dame. Notre right. Dame is totally pro-contraception. And I said, also, I my degrees in classical languages. Right. But I decided, I looked into it, and before long I was writing a book. Yeah. And so I decided my contribution to the pro-life movement was really going to be defending the church's teaching on contraception. Mm-hmm. It's been a wild ride. And you brought up uh, John Paul II and the uh, St. John Paul II mm-hmm. and his uh, his works, which eventually became uh, Theology of the Body. Uh, it just recently came to light, or, or at least recently was published enough that I noticed it, that that he was one of the only bishops who responded to the inquiry from Pope Paul VI asking for feedback. And, and he was very firm, specifically from, from his personalist approach of theology, of saying that this, uh, this teaching of the church needed to be upheld and continued when everyone else uh, was either remaining silent about it or was, was uh, trying to change. And so just the influence of the man who became St. Pope John Paul II, before any of us would, would even have imagined. Oh, I, I often think of Humanae Vitae as his document mm-hmm. as much as Paul VI. I mean, he he was passionate about this issue early in his priesthood. He wrote the fantastic book, Love and Responsibility. Yeah. And as you say, we've, we've now, they've unearthed some evidence that shows that Paul VI invited 200 bishops 
they were the synod of bishops uh, to express views on contraception. Mm-hmm. Only 25 responded. Um, 17 said the church should change its teaching. I forget the number. I, I don't, eight, obviously, it must have been, said the church shouldn't change its teaching. And right. Wojtyla wrote the longest document. I read, I don't know if you saw it yesterday, a new um, piece came out that he actually had a long letter that he wrote oh, um, to that. Paul VI saying that the church's teaching was infallible. Mm. Right, by virtue of the ordinary magisterium, very strong language, and so he also had put together his own commission. I don't know if the the document you're talking about, the answer to the query of the 200, was what has come to be known as the Krakow document or the mm-hmm. Krakow Memorial, where he had put together five uh, individuals, priests and doctors, to write a response to the documents that came out of the special commission. Very good document. It's, it's in both of those books um, that you've mentioned that have recently Great. been published. Uh, and it's a very good document. It defends natural law. It gives personalist arguments. Uh, and then he, he never stopped. He never right. stopped in his pontificate giving speeches and writing articles uh, to defend of the church's teaching. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. Janet Smith. Those two books are Why Humana Vitae is Still Right on Ignatius Press and Self-Gift Essays on Humana Vitae and the Thought of John Paul II by Janet Smith on Emmaus Academic. There's more to this conversation right after this. Join the conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. We'll be linking to a lot of these articles there. In the meantime... Don't go too far. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And we are coming to you from the conference celebrating the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae in Ontario, California, the Faithful to God's Design Conference. Uh, we have all kinds of amazing speakers here, including Dr. Janet Smith, uh, who, who your work with the CD that, that is all around, made available in the backs of parishes uh, and other places, the Contraception Why Not, was very influential in, in the, my life and my wife's life. Uh, and help us really get a grasp of what this document was about. And this is the document which we've mentioned recently on the show, uh, is the, the impetus, the last straw, as it were, that brought my wife and I into full communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, Dr. Janet Smith, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you have recently uh, translated Humana Vitae, uh, 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 you mentioned in the last segment that you, your degree, your area of study was classical languages. Uh, why the need? Because, of course, you go to, you go to the website, um, the Vatican website. They've got a translation there. Uh, the, the Daughters of St. Paul, they had a translation early on. Why the need for a new translation? Uh, yeah. give, us, give us some insight and then uh, tell us how to get a hold of it. Yeah, actually, I did it uh, some 25 years ago. That's what was the impetus for my book on Humanae Vitae generation later because mm-hmm. I I decided I I was looking up some some problematic passages that I found in in uh, the English and I thought what's Latin this doesn't make a lot of sense to me then I went and read it the English versions and I thought um, 
I mean, I started reading the Latin. I went to Latin because Latin is the official language of the church. Right. And I looked at the English translation. I said, these don't match up. There's no way a Latinist would translate some of these passages the way the English did. And that's when I learned that the English was based on the Italian of the mm-hmm. text. And so I thought that, again, this is a totally bold thing to do. I said, okay, I'm going to retranslate the document. And then there's something like, I don't know, a hundred and some footnotes or more, maybe many more. But being a little classicist, we always follow down all, track down all the footnotes. So I tracked them all down to the church documents that they were referring to. And I said, you know, there, I could write a commentary as, long, as well as a translation. And then um, the commentary became a book. So that's how it happened. But one of the, the, the first shocking uh, divergences between the English and the Latin was that the very first line of Humanae Vitae in the existing, other existing translations says, the very serious duty which spouses have of tra- transmitting human life. Right. And you read that and you kind of your heart almost sinks. You know, like, we've got this very serious duty and nobody likes very serious duties. Mostly we think about paying taxes. Mm-hmm. That's about what we think about. And um, things like that, cleaning the garage, taking out the garbage, if you want to call those very serious. And I looked at the Italian, and the Italian, it was a good translation of the Italian. The word was dovere, which means duty. But then I looked at the Latin, and the Latin was the word munus, M-U-N-U-S. And classicists love the word munus. It's a beautiful word. It, it means a whole host of things that not one word will capture in English. It's actually in the, the Latin liturgy where it means the Eucharistic gifts that are carried by angels up to heaven. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you would say is gift. But it also means it's not just a gift like, you know, a gift in a package. It's an extremely important gift that's been bestowed upon you. And really, the the better word I determined was the word mission, that you've been given a mission to do. And I didn't know. I thought, well, okay, maybe church Latin is different from classical Latin. Maybe it means something different in in uh, church Latin. So I, I went to the documents of Vatican II, and at that time there wasn't a concordance. So actually my little eye had to go through every page to see if Munus was there. Right? I, think, I think I found 268 or something like that, occurrences of Munus. But most of them, a lot, a lot of the documents had the word Munus in the subtitles. Um, concerning the munus of the laity, concerning the munus of the priest, concerning the munus of the pope. And uh, munus, well, let's put it this way, Christ has the threefold munus, or munere, plural, of being priest, prophet, and king. Right. So it's precisely what God asked Christ to do. I want you to be the priest, I want you to be the prophet, I want you to be a king. That's his job in this world. Mm-hmm. So I learned that the pope had the munus of infallibility, that Mary had the munus of being the mother of of Jesus, that priests have the munus of the sac- providing the sacraments, and then it says spouses have the munus of transmitting human life. Mm. You say this sounds beautiful. Right. It sounds beautiful. I mean, it's like what. God- and then it goes on to say, and it doesn't say the very serious. The word is gravissimo munus, which means the very important, right. extremely important mission of transmitting human life. Now, which would you rather have, a very serious duty or the extremely important mission of of transmitting human life, which, it goes on to say, by by which or by means of which or something, the spouses perform a service for God. Mm -hmm. Saying, spouses are performing a service for God. That sounds pretty nice. 
And what does that mean? Well, well, God created the whole universe to be a support system for human beings. He provided the whole universe so there'd be more human souls mm -hmm. that would come to be with him for an eternity. He wants lots of human souls. So he has asked spouses to keep their lovemaking act open to life, that they never um, refuse the gift of a child if they're having sex during the fertile time, mm -hmm. that God could create a new human soul. The male prefers provides the sperm, the female provides the egg, but it actually requires a creative act of God to create a new human soul because right. the sperm doesn't have an immortal soul, the egg does not have an immortal soul, where does it come from? Right. It has to come from God. So I, I decided just if it were just that one sentence, it was worth retranslating the document. There are right. other important uh, places as well, but that word the word munis appears throughout the document. Mm -hmm. And if you go through and you if you do task or, or duty or whatever instead of mission, it's a very different document. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. Janet Smith about Humana Vitae here on the 50th anniversary. Um, we have this document that's given to us and this, this, this mission that we share. And uh, I, I look at it and people often... They make it merely a biological thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to tie it back to the creed because, you know, we talk about what we say we believe in the creed has implications. Mm -hmm. And in the creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And as I spent some time preparing uh, couples for marriage, I would talk about when we, when we contracept, we are moving towards usurping the role of God. We're, we're falling in really to the, the sin, not of Adam and Eve, but of Lucifer, saying mm -hmm. that I will be I will. like God uh, and will take control of the things that are, are reserved for God alone. Oh, I think that's very much the case. Mm -hmm. and, and, and part of it is that, is that we no longer see our bodies as a gift from God. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole philosophical movement of the modern age from Descartes and others was basically that our bodies are just vehicles for our souls. Right. And, and we aren't our bodies. Uh, I can change it out just like I change a, a, a Toyota for a Honda or something. So if I wanted to change out my body in some way, it makes no difference because I am my soul. Where the the whole philosophy, metaphysics, etc., that the the church is based its thinking on, says no, we are a, a, a human being that is a unity, an intimate unity of, of of body and and soul. And so my body is me, just as my soul is me. And what I do with my body, it's I'm doing it. It's not that mm -hmm. my body's doing it or that I'm doing it through my body. My body is me. And it has and so impact on the soul as well. It has impact on the soul as well. But it, it, but if I see it with contracepting, I'm basically saying there's something very defective about my body. Mm -hmm. What's defective is that I could conceive for a woman. I could conceive a child when I have sexual intercourse. That's clearly a bad thing, which I'm, how I've decided, right. I don't know. But I've decided it's an inconvenient thing for me. And so the, and I, since the world doesn't see your sexuality as part of your being, your, the world doesn't see sexuality as a gift from God, it's just something horrible that I've inherited with my female body so I can do different things to myself to negate it. As mm -hmm. opposed to the church says, no, the female body is just this huge gift. I mean, that's how right. Adam responded to it. Here at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So it's this great gift. Uh, the woman is a great gift. And so your body is integral to being a woman so you want to respect what your body is not put all these devices and, and and chemicals in it but again if 
if it's a good idea for a, ch- a couple not to have a child at a certain time, and they've prayerfully discerned that with God, then they simply, sh- we, we know that a woman has three phases of her um, mm-hmm. fertile cycle. There's a f- period where she's infertile, there's a period when she's fertile, and then there's a period where she's infertile. And God has said to spouse, you can have sex all month long, right? all month long, fertile, infertile, whatever. But if you're going to have sexual intercourse during the fertile time, I'm hearing that, I'm understanding that to be an invitation to, for me to create a new human soul, right. that you would accept this as a gift. But if, you, if, but if you and I, God says you and I, the spouses, we decide it's not a good idea for you to have a child right now, just don't have sex during that period. You've got two other long periods of the month where you can have sex. Makes and a, sense. And again, it's not so much the intention of I want to avoid a pregnancy that is the problem. The problem is taking that gift of sexuality and and taking the end of it, the telos, its purpose, and, right. and perverting it and redirecting it and trying to take control over ourselves. It, it's kind of, it, it, you're, you can, all sorts of good images can be used. You're kind of stomping on sacred ground if you're mm-hmm. contracepting. You're not respecting it. It's kind of blasphemous even. Or you're sort of sending an invitation to God to create a new human life, but then you're slamming the door in his face when he tries to show up. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of images you can use, which are largely hostile. Whereas the couple that's using the nfp again if you see it as sacred ground it's just saying we're not going to tread on that ground right. if we're not prepared for the good consequences good mm-hmm. and a couple's units using nfp are largely wanting to get back to that mm-hmm. all right and i have to imagine that some of the view of uh the the woman's body quote unquote being defective or mm-hmm. or that there's some problem with fertility i have to imagine that some of that comes from uh, a, a lack of support that they've been made to feel that way either by society or by uh, the men in general or by men in specific that oh well this is your problem you know right, it's not right. it's not good for us to have a kid right now for financial reasons or some other reasons and so this is now not my problem not our problem but this is uh, it's your body that's doing this it's your problem and so I think that it seems to me that we bear some responsibility in framing the conversation and in being a support to women. Yeah, well, you know, again, there's <laughs> good and bad men, mm-hmm. and any man could be either one. Um, I think men are, are we have a fallen nature, so any man could be a predator, mm-hmm. right? right? We also have a redeemed nature, so any man can be a protector. Those are written into fallen male, male nature, predator. Redeemed male nature, protector, mm-hmm. right? So the men who are protectors, um, who revere women, who love women, and they want to really—they really want to learn how to love one specific woman, a particular mm-hmm. woman. But it's caught their attention beyond all other women. I want to devote my life to this woman. I never want to do anything that, at least, but harm her. Right? Mm-hmm. This man is going to say no contraceptives for my woman. Right. The terrible things it does to her body, and also I respect her body, and mm-hmm. I also know that if that I need to learn self-control with my sexual desires. Whereas the predator says, I love women, make, meaning I lust after women, right. and I want to enjoy women for my own purposes. Mm-hmm. And some women are so insecure in a certain sense that they will do whatever man wants in order to catch him, whether he's a good or bad man. Right. It's an interesting thing that you catch a good man by saying, I insist upon being respected. Yeah. And the, the other good news is that because of the work of Christ on the cross, it doesn't matter what your fallen nature is, you too can be redeemed. We're talking today with Dr. Janet Smith about the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, the little encyclical that everyone hates but no one's read. 
Why don't you go read her translation today? Type in Humanavite Janet E. Smith. It'll pop right up there in Google. We'll hear a section of it right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae, which occurred earlier this week, we've been talking with Dr. Janet Smith. Uh, she is one of the foremost experts on Humana Vitae. She wrote Humana Vitae uh, a generation later, and that's uh, that came out oh, some time ago. Uh, you may know her from her talk, Contraception, Why Not?, uh, or any number of amazing books. Um, but we, we've been talking with her about her two newest books. One is called Self-Gift, an Essays on Humana Vitae and the Thought of John Paul II, available on Emmaus Academic. And then also, Why Humana Vitae is Still Right, available on Ignatius Press. Uh, if you missed any part of the interview or you want to share it, which I can completely understand, uh, you want to share it with your friends, well, it's really easy to do. You go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, and there you will find all the archives. Really easy with a share button right there. All you have to do is uh, click on the episode you want to share, click the share button, and it will ask you where you want to share it. Uh, if you're sharing it to social media, it will even give you the option to do that without any extra clicks. Now, uh, while you're there, if you if you just want more, well, there's more to this interview as there is every week uh, for those who support the show through Patreon. So while you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link right up at the top. It says support the show. And for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all the extra segments that we produce each and every month. Every week there's a new one. Uh, and you get the extra, a couple of extra questions with a guest as a thank you for helping keep this show running, keeping us on the air. Now, today we're going to jump right into our reading from Scripture and from church history. Uh, as our reading from church history, we're going to take a little bit of a snippet and segment from the, the translation of Humana Vitae that Dr. Janet Smith uh, put together. We talked about it a little bit earlier in the show, and so I want to give you a, a sense of the rhythms and the language that she uses uh, in translating this this very important document. Our reading from Scripture today comes from today's uh, first reading from the Mass, and it's a, it's a pretty stringent reading as God is talking to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, reminding us, even on this side of cross, on this side of redemption, that we have a universal call to holiness, and that means something, and it, and it asks something of us, specifically, that we, uh, that we strive to live in holiness and to strive to please the Lord. So let's start with that reading from Scripture. The following message came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the house of the Lord and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Reform your ways and your deeds, so that I may remain with you in this place. Put not your trust in deceitful words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
only if you thoroughly reform your ways and your deeds, if each of you deals justly with his neighbor, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the orphan, and the widow, if you no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow strange gods to your own harm, will I remain with you in this place, in the land I gave your fathers long ago and forever? But here you are, putting your trust in deceitful words, to your own loss. Are you to steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, go after strange gods that you know not, and yet come to stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, we can commit all these abominations again. Has this house which bears my name become in your eyes a den of thieves? I too see what is being done says the Lord. That reading comes from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And I read that and I I shudder a little bit because in some ways we have become maybe a little too familiar with worship. Perhaps it's because we hear the same prayers every day and we lose a sense for the fact that uh, that that picture of the book of Isaiah where he's, he's standing there in the temple and he says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And that's the response. When he saw God in his glory, his response was to say, Woe is me, I am a person of unclean lips, right? From a people of unclean lips. And that's the point when he recognized his own, well, the greatness of God and his own weakness. That's the point that God called him, not only to live in holiness, but to go out and to speak to the nations, right? And so you and I, we have to recognize that what we do in our body has effects in our soul. And I love that here, God's not just giving a list of demands. He's, he's talking about this as his care for his people. He says, you're doing this to your own harm. It's not that God's just sitting there waiting to, to punish them because of this. Rather, he sees the harm that it's doing to them, and he's calling them to something that is better for them. And for us, we have different gods. We don't have Baal that we're burning incense to, but we do have our own pleasure or our own uh, selfish desires that we put first and foremost, that we put above God, and we say, you know, God, you'll forgive me for this. Well, don't forget that this, if you go into a sin knowing full well that it's sin and you choose to do it, saying, oh, well, God will forgive me later. That's the sin of presumption. And that draws us even further away. It, it makes it even harder for our hearts to truly be contrite. And that true contrition is what we, we must have as we approach the sacrament of confession. So whatever it was that you heard as that was being read, maybe, maybe it's nothing we've been talking about today, but maybe there's something that you know you heard that list that God gave to the prophet, to the people through the prophet. And you're like, oh, hmm, I've, I've been treating this, this sin too lightly. But then it's important not to take that realization and turn it into uh, a sense of self-flagellation or self-condemnation, but rather to, to recognize it and for that to draw us into repentance and back to the mercy of God in the sacrament of confession. Now, today, as we turn our attention to a reading from church history, because we're talking about Humanavite, I wanted to read to you from Humanavite, but specifically 
from Dr. Janet Smith's translation. Starting in number eight, we hear, Truly marital love most clearly manifests to us its true nature and nobility when we recognize that it has its origin in the highest source, as it were, in the God who is love and who is the Father from whom all parenthood in heaven and earth receives its name. It is false to think, then, that marriage results from chance or from the blind course of natural forces. Rather, God the Creator wisely and providentially established marriage with the intent that He might achieve His own design of love through human beings. Therefore, through mutual self-giving, which is unique and exclusive to them, spouses seek a communion of persons. Through this communion, the spouses perfect each other so that they might share with God the task of procreating and educating new living beings. Moreover, for the baptized, matrimony is endowed with such dignity that it is a sacramental sign of grace representing the union of Christ and his church. When these matters are placed in the proper light, we can clearly see the characteristic marks and requirements of marital love. It is of the greatest importance to have an exact understanding of these. First of all, this love is human, and therefore both of the senses and of the spirit, for which reason it is a product not only of natural instinct and inclinations, it is also and primarily involves an act of free will. Through this act of free will, the spouses resolve that their love will not only persevere through daily joys and sorrows, but also increase. Therefore, it is especially important that they become one in heart and soul, and that they obtain together their human perfection. Next, this love is full and plentiful. That is, it is a very special form of personal friendship, whereby the spouses generously share everything with each other without undue reservations and without concern for their selfish convenience. Those who truly love their spouse not only love them for what they receive, but also for their own sakes. This spouses do joyfully as they enrich their beloved with the gift of themselves. Furthermore, marital love is both faithful and exclusive to the end of life. Such, in fact, do the bride and groom conceive it to be on the day of their marriage when they freely and consciously unite themselves by means of the marital bond. Even if fidelity at times presents difficulties, let no one deny that it is possible. Rather, fidelity is always noble and of much merit. The example of many spouses throughout the ages has proved that fidelity is in accord with the very nature of marriage. Even more, it has proved that intimate and lasting happiness flows from fidelity, just as from a fountain. And finally, this love is fruitful. Since the whole of the love is not contained in the communion of the spouses, it also looks beyond itself and seeks to raise up new lives. Marriage and marital love are ordained by their very nature to the procreating and educating of children. Offspring are clearly the supreme gift of marriage, a gift that contributes immensely to the good of parents themselves. That reading comes from Dr. Janet Smith's translation of Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humana Vitae. You can find it online by typing in Humana Vitae Janet E. Smith. That's all the time we have for this week. Today's show is brought to you by Paige Keithley, who taught us NFP before we were married. 
and all those who support the show through Patreon. Join their numbers over at OutsideTheBalls.com. Click that Patreon link. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.